Good morning. Children, you can be dismissed. If you need a Bible, Eric Palmer in the back will bring you one. You can just raise your hand if you need a Bible. Now, that song was not supposed to be a joke. It, it, it really is fitting for Jonah. And, um, <laughs> and I won't make too many fishy dad jokes like Phil likes to. But we will dive into the book of Jonah this morning. Thank you. It, 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 took, it took a second. It was like... We are in Jonah chapter 2, really actually Jonah one seventeen. but most of our time we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2. So you can open your Bible. And as you do that, uh, raise your hands if we'll do a little bit of interaction here. Raise your hands if you, if you can remember the events that took place in your life on this day 11 years ago. No one? My mom is raising her hand. I, it, it, it's hard to remember, right? And uh, it's, it's because for most of us, on March 27, 2011, it was just a normal day. Uh, and there wasn't any significance attached to it. Um, but not for me. Because this day, 11 years ago, was the day I married Emily. And, yeah. <laughs> now Heather's like, oh, I remember. Um, <laughs> and and, and I, I use this as an example to say, just as we associate certain events with certain days, we do the same thing with stories. And when it comes to Jonah, unfortunately, usually all that we can think about is what? A, a, a giant fish, yeah. It, this huge, massive fish that swallows a man alive. And yet, I hope as we'll see today, the fish is such a small part of this story. And so as you may know, Phil, Pastor Phil, has been working through a series on prayer. We looked at the the prayer of Hannah, a mother's prayer. We looked at the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. Um, That was a king's prayer. And this morning, we're going to continue doing that uh, through a prophet's prayer. And it's my hope that as we read Jonah's prayer, we'll not only learn about prayer, but we'll learn to associate this book, not with a giant fish, but with the fact that God saves the undeserving. And that's, that's, my, that's the big idea for today. It's really simple. God saves the undeserving. And what we're going to do is we're going to explore this through our text in four parts. We're going to look at Jonah's distress We're going to look at Jonah's salvation, we're going to look at Jonah's response, and we're going to look at Jonah's confidence. And this literally just follows the text straight through. So first, in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, and we're literally, I won't say diving, we're jumping into this story, right? I mean, all some, some things have happened. So it just says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So in order to understand where we are, I need to bring us up to speed, give us a little bit of context, like what has gone on? And the Lord appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah? Well, what has transpired? Jonah, find out if you read chapter one, it's not long. Uh, you can read it in a few minutes. Jonah, he was a prophet called by God to go preach a message of judgment against his 
and Israel's enemies, the Ninevites. They were part of of Assyria. They were a brutal people, extremely sinful, committing atrocious things, and these were the people who would eventually carry the Israelites off to exile. So, good or bad people? Thumbs up. Yeah, these are bad guys. And that's why God says, go preach a message, uh, message of judgment. Their sin has come up before me. And so upon hearing this commission, Jonah, he runs. And he doesn't run to Nineveh. He runs to Tarshish, which is, if you look at a map, is the complete opposite direction. I mean, he could, he's trying to go all the way away. And we find out in chapter 4, and we'll, and we'll get to this a little bit later, that the reason Jonah runs is because he hates the Ninevites. And he doesn't want to give them an opportunity at hearing the message of judgment. He doesn't want to give them an opportunity to repent and to receive God's mercy. So we see Jonah's on the run, a rebellious prophet. He is, by the way, like the worst prophet. I was trying to think about how do I preach a prayer from the worst prophet? He's, he's rebellious. He is, he is grumpy. And so he boards a ship and God sends this storm of judgment and Jonah realizes what's going on, and he tells the pagan sailors to just throw him overboard to his death, and the storm will stop. So Jonah realizes what's happening. He realizes, I'm being disobedient to God, and there's trouble for me because of that. And so this is where our text picks up, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then we look at... um, Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And so the, the, the image is that Jonah is thrown overboard. He's sinking to his death. And then God sends this great fish to save him. So what we're looking at today is, is it's, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. It starts with Jonah looking back at his near-death experience in the water before celebrating God's salvation through a fish. And so, let's just read chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Sorry, starting in two, chapter 2, verse 2. So he's praying and he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look, yet I, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The language here is pretty visceral, isn't it? It's pretty ominous. It describes the depth of Jonah's agony. But we need to establish why he's in this situation. And and you probably know the answer already because we've been talking about it. What led to Jonah's distress? And it's, it's Jonah's disobedience to God. It's a sin. Three times, if you go back to chapter 1, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says it two times, and in chapter... 1 verse 10, it says it again. And so the author is trying to communicate a point to us. It says that Jonah was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. 
which is a completely ridiculous idea. You think God's prophet would know better than you can't just like run away from God. And he found that out pretty fast when he got on the boat. But what it does express is the disposition of Jonah's heart. I do not want to be near God. I am running from God. And now, not only is Jonah facing the penalty of his sin, but it's almost as if God is disciplining Jonah for his sin, isn't it? He's disciplining him that he might teach him the lessons that we'll see that he learns. And and I'm getting that from verse 3. Jonah told the sailors to throw him in, but how does Jonah interpret what's really going on here in verse 3? For who? For you cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And so what exactly, so, so, so we see why Jonah's in this distress, but what exactly does this distress because of a sin look like? And, and so let's just walk through this. First he says in verse 1, or sorry, verse 2, he says that, um, that he's crying out of the belly of Sheol, which is, he's talking about the grave. He's sinking in, in the water. And the picture, the, 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 the picture that, that, that you'll see as we go through this is that he's just sinking deeper. And he, he is on a downward spiral of death into this watery grave. So he says, I cried out of Sheol. And so you see in verse 3, you cast me into the deep. And then he talks about the waves and the billows passing over him. And then you go on to verse 5 and it says, the waters closed in over me. So now the waters are closing in over him. And then in verse 4, we see that this includes, what does he say? And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. There's this, so he's not only sinking into death, into a watery grave, but there's this relational rift a separation from God's presence that is going on. And this leads to, if you look at uh, the second half of verse 5, he says, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. If you think like, he's like, I'm, under, I'm so deep, I'm underneath the mountains. Weeds wrapped around his head, just this picture of like total enslavement. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So we see death, we see separation from the presence of God, from his sight. We see enslavement. And see, what what we see here is Jonah, he's seeking to flee from the presence of God. And he's actually getting exactly what he wanted. Except he quickly realizes, uh, this is not actually what I wanted. He realizes that in running from God, I'm embracing death. And this is, this is what sin and rebellion against God leads to, right? It leads to death. It leads to enslavement. It leads to this massive relational rift between humans and God. Furthermore, notice Jonah's response to the outworking of his sins. He recognizes his predicament. He, the, the, the language is, I, I, I can't fix this. I can't save myself. The depth of my sin is too deep. He's sunk so deep, he is just entrenched in this. And so he, in verse 4, he looks, where does he look? 
Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. We'll get to this in a second, but the point is, is Jonah is crying out for rescue. That's his response to his sin. He recognizes the depth of it. He's sinking into death, and he cries out to God. And I think this should make us question, how do we respond to our sin? And, and, and as I was thinking about it, I went, I, I think there's two common ways. And I think that we typically, some of us lean towards one, we have a tendency towards one, and some of us have a tendency towards the other. And, and the two ways of reacting to sin that are common are fatalism, right? I've messed up so bad, I'm beyond all help. Maybe I'll just keep running or I'll just die. Or the, the, the other response is to minimize. Right? It's to blame shift like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Well, the woman you gave me made me... So Adam's blaming God and the woman and it's like this weird thing that happened. So blame shifting or just downplaying. Well, it's, I mean, it's not that bad. It's just, it's, it's just a little way. I think these are two very common responses to our sin. Fatalism or to minimize. But what do we see Jonah doing? Even though he's a rebellious, grumpy prophet, God's disciplining him. And he's getting the rewards of his disobedience and sin. And he cries out, save me. We see that Jonah has the right response to his sin. He calls out to God in prayer. And this leads us to our second point, Jonah's salvation. So we saw Jonah's distress, but now we look at Jonah's salvation. And when I say Jonah's salvation, I don't mean that Jonah's the subject. He's receiving salvation. This is actually God's salvation. So if you read the second half of verse 6, it says, Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, verse 7, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. If we go back to verse 2, which is really a summary of this prayer, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. He heard my voice. So we see, what is God's response to Jonah's cry of salvation? Or cry for salvation. God responds with salvation. His hand, or in this case, his fish, plunges into the water to rescue him from the dark depths of, his, of this watery grave. So you, it's, it's, it's very picturesque. It's almost like Jonah is sinking and he's grasping and he can see the light above and then there's just darkness under him and the seaweed is reaching up and grabbing onto him and pulling him down and God sends this fish to save him. Notice Jonah doesn't get the death that he deserves. He gets life. He gets saved. And, 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 and like I said, no, notice that God hears his prayer. I called, he answered, God answered, you heard, God heard. And often I think that as we think about prayer, there's a tendency to forget that when we pray, God actually hears and he answers prayer. Right? Do, 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 do you feel this tension sometimes? Like, Prayer can become this rote exercise where I feel like I'm praying into the ceiling. Or I can show up, I, I just I'll confess, sometimes I, I come to the church prayer meeting at 9 a.m. on Sundays, and I'm like, man, I do not 
I, I just don't feel like being here. <laughs> it's another Sunday. It's another exercise in prayer. But I forget that God, like when we pray, God actually hears and responds to prayer. And so I think between the hardships of life and then the cynicism that can quench our hope, prayer can become that. It can become this rote exercise without this sense of expectation that God actually hears and acts. But imagine, just imagine for a moment, how a change in our attitude and a change in our expectations could change how, the, how, how, we, how we pray. Right? Would it actually change the frequency of our prayer, what we pray for, the way that we pray, our priorities? One of the most encouraging things is, is actually when we pray and then seeing God answer prayer. But we'll never know answered prayer if we're not praying, right? But still more, and I think pertinent to, to this text, I think the sense of hopelessness in prayer can be especially present when we're praying in light of our own sin, like Jonah is. Does God really forgive me? Would he actually rescue me out of the depth of my own folly? Can he truly redeem this situation? And what we see in Jonah's life is that God not only hears and answers prayer, but he responds with salvation to sinners who call on him. Isn't this amazing? He responds to a sinner, to a rebellious prophet who calls on him. Just as Paul would say in the New Testament or Peter in his sermon in Acts, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And notice also that Jonah associates God's salvation with the temple. So look in ver- so we already saw in verse 4, he's saying, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7, so in verse 4, he's hoping to see the temple again. And now in verse 7, his prayer comes into the temple. There's a progression of movement here. Jonah's sinking and he wants to look at the temple. And then he, he's saved and God has pulled him out of the water. And he, his prayers actually come into the temple. There's movement in this, in this prayer. And so why is this significant? He brings it up twice. Why is the temple so significant for Jonah? I think there's multiple reasons, but one worth mentioning is that the temple was, as one of my professors at seminary says, uh, frequently says, it's, it's, it's the hot spot of God's presence. So when man and woman were cast out from the garden for his sin, and, and that, was, that was like this cosmic temple, this place where God dwelt with man, his presence was there. As God is seeking to restore that relationship and he establishes the nation of Israel, the temple became a place where God chose to make himself known. The physical temple with all the stones that were built, God's presence dwelt there. And it was, it, it was, it was the way that, that God said, my presence will be here and this is the way that you can commune with me on the earth. So in other words, when Jonah is looking at the temple and he's, his prayer is coming into the temple and then he's associating all of this with God's salvation, He's associating salvation with God's presence. With a restoration of relationship between himself and God. And so the point in going into all this detail is, is that what we see here is that in, in God sending the fish to plunge into the water and to save Jonah, 
in God saving Jonah out of the depth of his sin and his distress, we see that the whole gamut of Jonah's distress finds its solution in God's salvation. He's saved from death to life. He's pulled out of enslavement. He's he's no longer separated from God's presence. And ultimately, we know that this all points to Jesus, right? Who, just like Jonah, faced the horrors of death, going to the cross, and after three days was raised from the dead. And in so doing, Jesus talked about raising up the temple of his body in John 2.18. The point being that in him, and because of his death and resurrection, all who call on him to be saved receive forgiveness of sins, salvation, new life, the experience of God's presence, a new and restored relationship with him. It's, it's because of Jesus that John can say in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's Jonah's response to this? We saw his distress, we saw his salvation. What's his response? So let's look at verses 8 and 9. Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. So we see that Jonah's response to God's salvation is not only characterized by turning back to him, right? Like he's, he's no longer running from God. He's calling out to God. He's looking to the temple. There's this restoration of a relationship. So it's not only, only defined by a turning back, a repentance, but it's also defined by a recommittal. So in verse 8, he recognizes afresh that true fidelity, true compassion, this steadfast love, it's faithful love is found in God, not idols, not false gods. To turn to false gods is to forsake that blessing. But then we also see in verse 9, he says, he talks about thankfulness. He talks about fulfilling his vows. So whereas God commissioned him to do something and he's saying, you know what? Uh, no, I'm going to run. So instead of saying no to God, he's saying yes. He's turning back to God. He's, he's saying, I will act faithfully to you. I will sacrifice to you. And so whereas we saw, if you remember in Jonah's distress, we saw that Jonah's crying out to God. Is, is, that's the proper prayerful response to sin. Now we see commitment as the proper prayerful response to God's mercy. And so, like, we could go a lot of directions with this, but one of the first things that came to my mind is Paul, in, in, in his epistle to the Romans, spends the first 11 chapters really laying out what the gospel is. It takes a lot of time to lay out what he would call the mercy of God. And then, to wrap all that up, he starts in chapter 12, verse 1. The first thing he says, I appeal to you, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God, based on everything I've just told you about the gospel, the mercy of God, the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the life that you can have. He says, based on all of that, I'm appealing to you. I'm calling out to you. Please listen to this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The point is, the proper response to the mercy of God The proper response to being rescued from the depths of our folly and sin is to offer our whole self 
to offer our whole life as a living sacrifice to God. And, and the picture is really interesting, isn't it? Because a sacrifice normally dies. But the pictures were living sacrifices. We still walk around. We do things. But we're this sacrifice to God. Given wholly over to him. And so, as believers, I think one of the things that this means for us is that when, when we see our own sin as followers of Jesus, and then we're praying in light of our sin, we're calling out, we're appealing to the mercy of God. One of the things that I think is right to do, a proper response in that context, is to then express commitment to God. To say, God, I, not only do I need your salvation, please forgive me, but I, would you help me to change? Would you help me to follow you and live in ways that are pleasing to you? It's, it's expressing this, this sense of commitment to him, to be faithful to him, and asking him the strength to do so. So we've seen, we're, we're walking through Jonah's prayer, we've seen his distress, calling out in, in, in light of his distress and his sin. We've seen Jonah's salvation, God reaching and pulling him out of the depths of death. We see his response, committing himself to God. But now we see Jonah's confidence. And it's this last part of verse 9. So it's almost like he's praying this prayer and it just culminates in this huge exclamation point. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's almost as if this statement is undergirding. It's holding up the whole prayer. It's, 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 it's what gives him context and confidence to pray what he just prayed. It's what gives him confidence to have cried out to God. And what this means, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what it means. It means that salvation, it, it's God's possession. It's, it's, salvation is God's. It, it, it's his to do with what he wants. It's his to give or withhold from who, whomever he desires. He alone is its owner and distributor. It's not like somebody else can choose, ah, you know what, you're going to give me salvation and you're not going to give this person salvation. It's not how this works. God is salvation's owner and distributor. And this is what gives Jonah the confidence to pray for rescue in light of his sin. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, how can Jonah be sure that God's the type of God to give him salvation? Because who is Jonah? He's a rebellious, racist, grumpy, selfish, angry prophet. That's who Jonah is. A rebellious, racist, grumpy, selfish, angry prophet. Why is this good news for Jonah? Why is Jonah exclaiming this? Why would God give this, his salvation to that sort of a person? Maybe he won't. At the end of the day, God is its owner and distributor. If we keep reading, which we won't, you can read it on your own, but I'll summarize for you. Jonah, after the fish vomits him up, fulfills the mission given to him by God. He goes to Nineveh. And he proclaims God's coming judgment. And to our surprise, the Ninevites, they repent. They repent. Their repentance is so full that the king makes a decree that the cows have to repent. 
It's, it's this very satirical, like the cows have to wear sackcloth. and It's, it's like the, the, the whole thing is a satire. And, and it's, it's, the repentance is so complete. They're just turning back. I don't know if complete is necessarily the right word, but Nineveh repents. And how does God respond? He relents from unleashing disaster on them. In other words, the Ninevites experienced the same grace and mercy that Jonah just experienced. That's the narrative flow here. And even more surprising, though, if you flip over to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, even more surprising than the Ninevites repenting is Jonah's response. But then again, if you've been reading the book of Jonah, his response isn't really that surprising. Because he's a grumpy, angry dude. So, so at the end of chapter 3, it just said God relented. And look at chapter 1, verse 4. Or chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. One way to translate that is it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He's putting evil motives on God. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. This is why I ran away. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do, do we see what Jonah is saying? I knew this is who you are. And if I went and preached judgment and they repented, I, I knew that you would be gracious to them. He's like, he cannot stand this. He is fuming. And he's fuming because the Ninevites repented and God responded in mercy. He's mad because the Israelites, the Israelites, the Ninevites are his enemies. He doesn't want them to have God's mercy and grace. Now, we'll talk about Jonah's attitude in a second. But... This text does show us something about Jonah's confidence, doesn't it? It shows us that Jonah had this deep-seated conviction about who God is. Doesn't it? I knew this is who you are. Now, the way that he applies that, it's not great. (laughs) But he was actually okay applying it in his life, right? So we'll get to this in a second, but Jonah here is quoting from the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. He's quoting from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and really just part verse 6. This is the moment, so if you go back to Exodus 34, this is the moment that for the first time in the Bible, significant, light bulbs should be going off. This is the first time in the Bible that God reveals his character. He reveals his merciful character to the people of Israel in the context of their having just committed spiritual adultery by worshiping the golden calf in Exodus 32. And the basic idea, we don't have time this morning to dive into it. I could talk for a long time about this. It is, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. The Israelites commit this horrendous thing, breaking the covenant with the God who just saved them out of Egypt, and they respond by spiritual adultery. We're going to go worship the golden calf and say that you rescued us, and God is going to 
responds with judgment. And Moses, the righteous intercessor, steps in. And then God announces his character. The whole reason that he doesn't judge them in the end is because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the basic idea here is that God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, even to repentant idol worshipers. To those who don't deserve it. And he will consistently act this way to, who, who, to whoever turns to him in repentance. And Jonah picks this up. This was, if there was one verse that would summarize Israel's theology of who God is, it's this verse. It's these verses. It comes up all over the place. Jonah, so he is banking on the character of God in all the wrong ways, sort of. In all the right ways and in all the wrong ways. The, the, the first thing that, that I want us to see here, though, is that Jonah's confidence, if we go back to his prayer, his confidence to pray for salvation in light of his sin. Remember we asked the question, well, why would Jonah be so confident? He's a racist, rebellious, grumpy, angry, rebellious, running away prophet. Why would God be gracious to him? And his confidence to pray for salvation in light of his sin was based on the character of God. He had this deep-seated conviction about who God was. So when he says salvation belongs to the Lord, he knows that, and the Lord, he's the type to grant that salvation to all who cry out on him. Even a rebellious prophet like Jonah. Do we see that God is generous with his salvation? But who else does God give his grace and mercy to? The Ninevites. He gives it to to idol-worshipping Ninevites as well. So we see on the one hand our confidence in prayer, especially when we're crying out to God in light of our sin, is nothing less than the utterly consistent and amazingly merciful character of God who saves. So we see, looking at Jonah's prayer and how he relies on the character of God, we see that when we are in the depths of despair over our own failures before God, when we come face to face with our propensity to sin, when we, in the battle against sin, see that we keep on messing up, and when the enemy fills our minds with the vile notion that there's no hope for us, Because of our sin, what do we do? We bank on the character of God. We say, I know you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But the issue here is also that God is merciful to all people. See, Jonah had this deep-seated conviction about the character of God, and he experienced God's salvation He just didn't think about all of its implications. See, while the mercy of God was good news for Jonah, it was also horrific news for him. Because Jonah's okay enjoying this for himself, but he's not okay with other people enjoying it. Specifically his enemies, the Ninevites. And we could look at Jonah with a judgmental attitude. We could all point the finger and be like, dude, you are so messed up, man. Like, you just got saved from the depths of death, 
And now, like, you don't want these people to be saved. Like, what's your problem? But let's, let's think about this. We all have people who we have a hard time with, don't we? We all have people who have wronged us, who annoy us, who we think make our lives difficult. We all have people who it's hard for us to pray for. Or we have people that we would pray for, but when we actually see God blessing them, we're like, well, why does everything have to work out for you? You don't deserve that. We all have that boss, that coworker, that friend, those homeless people, those immigrants, those Democrats, those Republicans, those protesters. And the point is, the phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, stands to teach Jonah, and then by implication us, that anyone, anyone, can experience the mercy of God, even our enemies, even God's enemies. And the implication is that we who have experienced the mercy of God should be merciful to others, even our enemies. We should be those who pray not only for ourselves, but also for others, that they would know the blessings of the salvation of God. So we see this twist Jonah, in saying salvation belongs to the Lord, realizes some broader implications of that. And so in the end, we've gone through this prayer of Jonah, and we see that because salvation belongs to the Lord, it has implications for us. It has implications for how we understand God's working with sinful people, just like us. Even though we follow Jesus, we still mess up and we sin. See, this prayer of Jonah points to God's merciful nature. But it also has implications for how we respond to our sin, for how we pray, for how we relate to God, but also how we relate to others, even our enemies. So next time, when you open up the book of Jonah, don't look to the fish. Please do not look to the fish. But look to the God who saves the undeserving. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that we can, as your people, bank on your character. We don't have to doubt who you are. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence in who you are, that when we pray in light of our sin, when we see our own failings, we would turn to you. And Lord, make us people who are merciful. Having received mercy, Lord, that we would give it out freely to others and seek for your mercy to be shed on them. Pray those things in your name for your glory. Amen.